Sorry if your wife didn't stand for the sermon. I... <clears throat> it, is, uh, it is actually a real pleasure for me to be here with you today. I do consider this a one of the the brother-sister churches uh, in my life. Uh, my parents were here. I was in Manchester. Uh, all kinds of things have gone on. And I am glad to see that God continues to bless. I'm glad to see that the gospel still is strong. As I even think of the churches that are around us here in the Hartford and Springfield area and how God has continued to to make his word known and be faithful to his people. Uh, and it is really in that spirit, in a way, that I, I come to our, our text for this morning, uh, which we find in Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, we'll be looking at the first 10 verses of this chapter. Follow along with me as I read. Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket of of bulrushes, and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds, and sent her a servant woman, and she took it. And then she opened it, and she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse? from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. <clears throat> Let us pray. Our Father and our God, as we come now to the proclamation of your word, your truth, your revelation to us of who you are and what you have done, we pray for that work of your spirit in each one of our hearts this morning, that indeed, your word would be a deep encouragement. It would direct our eyes to that which is important and that we would trust you and worship you with all our heart, 
mind, and soul. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. It would be hard to overestimate the richness of this text that we're looking at this morning. It is about the birth of a Savior. Moses is to be God's instrument in saving Israel. But at the same time, it is about the saving of the Savior. This uh, passage is told to us uh, in simple, straightforward uh, narrative style. There is no attempt to embellish the events or to make them more entertaining or more readable. Again, it is one of those just-the-facts-ma'am presentations. In this way, I think it is much like the account of Luke concerning the birth of Jesus Christ. We read there that Caesar Augustus called a census, which was a code word for uh, taxes to be to be levied. Mary and Joseph had to travel from Galilee to the homestead of Joseph in Bethlehem in order to pay those taxes. Mary was pregnant, and it was very apparent that the child was due soon. They go to the inn, and there's no room in the inn, and so they went out to the cattle shed for the night. Mary gave birth, wrapped the child up, and put him in a manger. You could say that the first uh, exciting, bold thing that happened that night is the angels appearing to the shepherds in the fields, bringing the message of the newborn Savior and singing glory to God. But it is only as you you stop and think about what has happened in that sleepy village of Bethlehem in a cattle shed that you become overwhelmed. The Savior has been born. And I think you could make the same observations here about this presentation. It is only when you begin to think about the implications and the the, uh, consequences of these events that you can step back and you cannot help but see the amazing work of God in it all. To use C.S. Lewis's language from the Tales of Narnia, Aslan is on the move. God's people are slaves and have been slaves for 400 years to the most powerful empire of the world. But God is on the move. The stage has been set. Here a small family of about 70 in all has become over 2 million people. They have been enslaved, but fear not. God is bringing one to save his people from this tyranny. 
we look at the first couple of verses of this chapter, we see the birth of Moses. Our narrative begins with a love story. Boy meets girl, and they get married, and eventually the, the obvious happens. The inevitable, excuse me, happens. <clears throat> we read, now, a man from the house of Levi, Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. I think in this uh, deceptively simple statement, several things come into play. I, I don't know if it strikes you as kind of odd, but as you as you, this thing is introduced to you, we're not told who these people are. We aren't given their names, are we? We don't find out who they are by name until a few chapters later in chapter 6. We were told that Moses' father's name was Amran and his mother's name was Jochebed. But what we are told in chapter 2 is that both Amran and Jochebed were of the tribe of Judah. It seems Exodus is more interested in the fact that Moses was born of the tribe of Levi. Well, excuse me, didn't I? I just messed up there, didn't I? Excuse me. They are of the tribe of Levi, not Judah. And what Exodus seems interested in is, is that Moses is born in this tribe to this tribe of Levi. And that this is a, a point of particular importance. Though at this point, Levi as a tribe is of no particular significance. But as the history of Exodus plays out, we will see it become of great significance. The tribe of Levi is to become the priestly tribe of Israel. Moses is to fulfill the duties of a priest on Mount Sinai as he is the go-between between God and Israel. He is, as it were, the mediator of the covenant made at Sinai. But we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves so, so far. Uh, so we just now have these two Levites who get married, and the inevitable happens, and a child is born. Now, as you read the text, I think it would be kind of a natural conclusion, just reading it <clears throat> quickly, uh, that Moses was the firstborn child of this couple. That actually isn't the case, as we see later in the chapter, when Moses' sister keeps watch over Moses. When, his basket, when the basket is floating in the Nile River. And as we go on in the book of Exodus and the details of Moses' family are given to us, we realize it's not only Miriam that is older than he, but his brother Aaron as well. But you see, as we look here, the Moses is the focal point. The history being revealed here is history with a purpose. A purpose to show how God delivers his people out of bondage. And it is Moses 
God sends as their deliverer. And so the text is focused on his birth. But again, we are not yet told his Jewish name, only that he was a son, and with that, the reality of the situation closes in around us. Our chapter begins with a simple word in Hebrew, amen. Excuse me, I'm in trouble here. The, the simple word and, A-N-D, the conjunction. The text says, and now a man of the tribe of Levi took as his wife a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Now, I know if you're glancing down at the Bibles, you can't see that word and. Over and over again in our translations in English, that and, that Hebrew wow consecutive, which indicates sort of the, the continuing uh, narrative uh, is not translated. But what we are to realize is that uh, this sweet story is part of a larger context. At the very end of this chapter, uh, we are, <coughs> excuse me, at the very end of the last chapter, the verses that are immediately Preceding these words, we read, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And so with the notation that Moses' mother bears a son, we are to recognize that this boy is slated for death at Pharaoh's command. One commentator has titled these ten verses in chapter two, the woman, the women, plural, the women and baby Moses. <clears throat> it is Moses who is central to the, to the story, but the heroes of this section are, humanly speaking, three women, each playing an important role. Jochebed, Moses' mother, Miriam, Moses' sister, and Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter. Speaking of Moses' mother, we are told in the second part of verse 2, the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. <clears throat> what does it mean when it says, when she saw that he was a fine child? Is this just another mother bragging or in their newborn child? Or was he particularly fine? A particularly fine specimen? You know, handsome even in his birth. Healthy. Well, I think the, the key to this phraseology is found in the specific words used here. 
The Hebrew word that is translated in most of our texts as either fine or in some texts beautiful is the word tov, which is commonly translated as good. We know the phrase mazel tov, good luck. So seeing that he was a a good child, when when we put that into its context, we begin to hear echoes of Genesis chapter 1, where God pronounces good all that he has created. And now, so here, the emphasis was not on on, uh, his being physically uh, beautiful or a, a, a healthy specimen, but one who is good in God's eyes for the purposes that God intends for him. It fits in with the creation theme that we find in Exodus. In Genesis, we have the creation of the universe. In Exodus, we have the creation of God's nation, Israel. The birth of Moses is not merely about the birth of one man, but the birth of a people of a holy nation, those set apart to the Lord. And so, in keeping with just the facts, man, ma'am, our, star, our story moves right along. He was a good child. She hid him for three months. Moses' mother is, is well aware of Pharaoh's decree. She has been hiding the boy, but now he is getting too large to hide. Or I suspect as he's getting larger, he's getting noisier. My experience is that young babies cry but are very quiet. Three months old, not so much. And so now the question is, what's going to happen? The question is not, will she and her family get in trouble, but if her son is found, will he be killed? It really is hard to know what she hoped for when she places Moses in a basket and set him afloat in the Nile. But again, we have that this description in verse 3. It's a careful description, and it's important. It's interesting. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And again, the language used here is significant with echoes of Genesis. The Hebrew word for basket is used only twice in all the Old Testament. Here, in Exodus chapter 2, and in Genesis chapter 6, in verses 15 through 19, where God commands Moses, commands Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. You see, the word for basket here in Exodus 2 and the word for ark in Genesis 6 
are the very same Hebrew word. Now, I'm not suggesting that the English translation of basket is wrong here. Obviously, this container which Moses is placed in is made from the weaving of reeds into the basket form. But there is more being said than the mere making of a basket. This basket has certain symbolic significance. Let me draw out the parallel uh, just a tad further. The ark, or in Hebrew, the tada, taba, was the means of salvation for Noah and his family. And it was covered in pitch and tar. The basket, or in Hebrew, the tabad, that was the means of salvation for Moses, also was covered in pitch and tar. Now, I want to be careful here. Jacobed did not choose the language of basket or ark. But the human author of both Genesis and Exodus, Moses, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, indeed was intentionally making connection between Noah and himself. Think about it. Both Noah and Moses are specifically chosen by God to be delivered of a tragic, watery destiny. Both were placed in an ark covered in tar and carried safely on the water that brings destruction to others. Both are the means through which God creates a new people for his own purposes. The whole world has been wiped out except for Noah and his family. They are the new beginning. And now Moses is to begin and initiate the nation of Israel. Now, I would also suggest that Moses' safe passage through the water of the Nile not only looks backward in some ways to Noah, uh, but it also looks forward. Forward to what we see in in Exodus 14 as Israel's Life together as a nation begins and they leave Egypt and cross through the Red Sea, through the water on dry ground. Moses' redemption as an infant will be replayed with respect to Israel and the very infancy of her existence as a nation. There is, of course, a certain irony that we see here. We see throughout the text, really. This child doomed to death by Pharaoh's decree will become the very means through which Israel escapes not only Pharaoh, but Egypt as well. So, here is this Jewish boy floating along the edge of the Nile River, his sister somewhere in the bushes hiding, watching. You'd have to think 
that if a Las Vegas bookie was making odds on the chances of survival, he would be giving very long odds indeed that this baby would survive. The Nile, after all, is one of the major rivers of the world. And one of its significant predators are crocodiles. And really, who knows what else? But of course, we're not dealing with the statistical odds of a Las Vegas bookie. Aslan is on the move. On that day, Pharaoh's daughter with her attendants, has come down to the Nile to bathe. And as she is walking along the river, Pharaoh's daughter spots the basket. She sends her slave into the river to retrieve it. And verse 6, we see her response to the basket's cargo. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Our text says, upon seeing this three-month-old Jewish baby, she felt sorry for him, or she she pitied him. Um, I don't think that quite captures the language here. I don't think the translation gets all the nuance of what's being said. I think it's better translated. She had compassion on him. The fact that she goes on to adopt this baby boy reveals the depth of her compassion. She knows this is a Jewish baby since he has the unmistakable sign of a Jewish boy. Circumcision. She knows well What she has found is the result of her father's atrocious edict that all Hebrew baby boys be killed. And yet, in her compassion, she takes this boy to be hers. Then, Miriam, seemingly out of nowhere, shows up and offers to find a nursemaid for this little boy from among the Hebrews. To Pharaoh's daughter, that made sense. So Miriam goes and she fetches Moses' mother and brings him, brings her to Pharaoh's daughter. And they arrange, uh, uh, they make mutually acceptable arrangements uh, for the young years of Moses' life. And as you read the story, you, you just sit there and say, oh my goodness, you, you couldn't help it if you burst out laughing. Laughing at the wonder of it all. The daughter of Pharaoh agreed to accept the baby's mother as his nursemaid, and she agreed to pay her. This arrangement saved this boy from certain death and ensured his protection and continued life. But it also reunited him at least for a few years with his mother. She would actually be paid to nurse her own child. 
and she would be getting paid out of the coffers of the one who had ordered her death. The irony of it all is it's just rich. When Moses would finally become of age to be adopted, that was probably around ages three to four, and live in Pharaoh's household, he would be assured of the highest and greatest of educations. God's deliverer grew up in the very court from which he would deliver his people. Only this environment, I think, could sufficiently prepare him, equip him, to speak to the next Pharaoh. It is all astonishingly amazing. I think one of the interesting things in this text, the first two chapters of of Exodus until you get to the last two verses of chapter 2. One of the things that's interesting is that God's name is never mentioned. It's never mentioned at this point in the book of Exodus. Nevertheless, it is abundantly clear that God is at work in every detail surrounding the birth of a Savior. Consider the facts. Moses is spared by being cast onto the Nile that was supposed to drown him. He is treated with maternal compassion by the daughter of the very king who condemned him, whose nation he would eventually become the nemesis of. As a helpless baby, his own mother is given the task of nursemaid, and she is paid from Pharaoh's household account. Who else but God could accomplish such a great salvation? Though God is not formally mentioned in Exodus so far, it is clear that the divine fingerprints are all over the narrative. I think one of the major lessons that we need to be reminded of, and I think we need to be reminded of this time and again, over and over. Uh, We see it over and over again in Scripture, so I I imagine it is something we tend to drift away from at times. But here's, here's that lesson. Salvation is the work of God from beginning to end. God does not just influence people for salvation. He does not simply make salvation possible. He saves. From beginning to end, salvation is the work of God. And our scripture calls attention to God's saving work, I think, by calling the basket literally an ark. As we've already noted, the only other place in the Bible that uses this Hebrew term is in the story of Noah. This is a hint that God saved Moses the same way he saved Noah. This is not merely a coincidence. Both Noah and Moses passed through the deadly waters by riding in an ark the vessel of salvation. They were baptized, as it were, in the same water in which others perished. 
But you know, did you notice as well that God is, was also at work in the life of Pharaoh's daughter? The choices she made were completely counterintuitive to an Egyptian woman of nobility. In the providence of God, she went down to the river at just the right time to discover Moses. She seized the basket and in curiosity sent her slave to fetch it. But the moment she peeked into the basket, this young woman's curiosity turns to compassion. Even though she realized immediately that this boy was a Hebrew slave and in direct defiance of her father's orders, she determines to adopt him. The compassion of this Egyptian woman, I think, reminds us that God's exodus was not just for Jews. Ultimately, it was for the salvation of the whole world. If you, you get to around chapter 14 and you see the two million Jews leaving, if you read the, 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 the groups of people that left along with them, there were many different Gentiles that took the opportunity to escape uh, the tyranny of Egypt with the Jews. <clears throat> the Christians everywhere, I think, can join with people of different races, different tribes, different tongues, different nationalities, and give thanks to God for Pharaoh's good daughter. We see in all of this what we read in Romans 8. We know that all in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And the birth of Moses is a great example of God working out salvation down to the very last detail. None of the events in this narrative would have happened without God's overruling Pharaoh's deadly decree. But these things all happened according to the providence of God in order to accomplish his plan to save a people. God saved the child Moses so that he could save his children, the Israelites. From beginning to end, salvation belongs to the Lord. We mentioned a, a moment ago that we, we, we can revel, we can see this as a great example of God's great promises that we read in, in Romans 8, that we know that all things work for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But we also know that the, the good that he is working in us is not always easy. Is not always pleasant. Moses is cast out of Pharaoh's house or has to run away to escape. He spent 40 years in the wilderness. And then he comes back to lead a stiff-necked and rebellious people who were no pleasure to lead. But God is working something greater through Moses and his people 
and ultimately for our blessing and our salvation. <clears throat> the story of baby Moses in a basket is a marvelous story of God's working in history to triumph over evil. But it is not the whole story, is it? Moses was a savior, but he was not the savior. Long after the exodus, the Israelites were still waiting, were still longing, still seeking another savior. We read in, in, in the Psalms that they entered the promised land, but they did not finally enter into, or they did not enter yet into the final rest. There was more. And I think what we see here in this, this passage is that Moses is a, a prototype of what God is ultimately doing. The book of Exodus is like a, a giant sign pointing forward to another little child who was born in Bethlehem, of whom the writer of Hebrews says he was a child worthy of greater honor than Moses. He was no ordinary child. He was God in the flesh, in human flesh. And this extraordinary baby was born into human history. Like Moses, he was given a name to match his destiny. They called him Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. And like Moses, this Savior was born under a death sentence. Herod was a tyrant every bit as wicked as any of the pharaohs. Herod tried to trick the wise men into giving him Jesus' location so that he could have him put to death. When that failed, he sent out his dragoons to kill all the baby boys in, in Bethlehem two years and under. But God delivered the newborn baby. Mary and Joseph were warned of Herod's evil, and they took the baby and they fled to Egypt. In all these events... God was working out his plan down to the very last detail for salvation is his work from beginning to end. The birth of the Savior was only the beginning. Everything else went according to plan as well. In time, Jesus was brought up from Egypt to Israel. He grew strong and he was filled with wisdom and, and the grace of God was upon him. He lived a life without sin until he finally was put to death. A death that was planned beforehand for him. The child born in Bethlehem was born to die. And in that death is our deliverance from the bondage of sin. 
the, the reward of our sin is paid for. Because Jesus, the infinite Son of God, in human flesh, bears it for us. It is God's ultimate triumph over evil, but it doesn't stop there, does it? You, you can quite imagine Satan's glee when it said finally that Jesus died. I won. And three days later, death was conquered so that we need not ultimately die but that we might live. That is the Savior of the world. And of course, the question is, do you believe this? Do you embrace it? I don't know all of you. Maybe God is working in some of your hearts today to, to see the wonder of God's great salvation and how great and amazing God we serve. You embrace it. I think all of this, or many of us here this morning, would be glad to say, yes, salvation is the work of God from beginning to end. Until that moment, we wonder what God's doing, and we, we sort of, we take up the, uh, the trial, and we start doing some stuff that needs to be done, because we don't know if God's going to do it. We, we get caught up in things. We worry. We, we can get overwhelmed with anxiety because we have not yet fully embraced that Jesus is the Savior of the world and that he saves. He doesn't just make salvation possible. We are called to trust God the way that desperate mother once did when she put her son in a basket and entrusted him to the God who saves. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Most of all, Lord, I thank you that you are the God who acts in this world, in history, in real time. And you have, by your wisdom, determined to record that, that we might know. We might know the truth about who you are. We might know the truth about who we are and how much we need the Savior. Lord, help us to rest in your saving. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.